Deadwood Soundwell. This podcast contains explicit language and plot spoilers. My name is Charles R. Horgan. I'm a Purple Heart veteran and a lifelong movie nerd. Recently, I've noticed that my relationship with the most action-y of action films, the war film, has become complicated. I'm exploring this genre with my pal, Dr. Aaron Donaldson. Hit the theme! What am I gonna do? I can't survive on my America. If the worst is true, is it just a waste of time? What am I trying to find? Are you alive? Oh my America, perennial with the earth and freedom, love and law and life. Perennial with the earth, my freedom, Hi, Aaron. Hi, Charles. It's good to be back uh, here with The Real War Project. We were talking right before we hit record that it feels like a long time ago that we watched The Guns of Navarone, which is the first movie for this batch. We didn't take a break. It just feels that way. And you said it was because the second movie we watched, Tears of the Sun, felt so long. And I said, yes, correct. (laughs) That's part of it. Um, and then the third movie that we watched was Star Trek for The Voyage Home. Part of it to me, I said, is that these movies are really disparate. We've got three fairly disparate movies. The Guns of Navarone, 1961. The greatest high adventure of our time. With a cast as exciting as the story it tells. Gregory Peck, Gia Scala, Alastair McLean's best-selling novel, Live to the Hilt on the Islands of the Aegean Sea adventure movie set in like world war ii era the tears of the sun is a special ops movie made in 2003 activity is high as foreign nationals continue to be evacuated from all over nigeria gentlemen we're gonna have to put you back in your prime objective is extract dr lena Hendricks. our presence underground will be considered hostile and Star Trek The Voyage Home takes place in San Francisco uh, in 1986. Avoid the planet Earth at all costs. We are under the attack of an orbiting probe. Stardate 1986. San Francisco. Our own world is waiting for us to save it. They have 24 hours. Everybody remember where we parked. Break up. To complete their mission. It looked like a cadet review. People beam into night to collect the photos. And it's the Star Trek crew going down there. And what do they all have in common? You said we have this like crew of specialists. Is that what's going on? That's what ties this batch together? Yeah. I was arbitrarily putting together uh, movies that had... Um, that had assembled teams of the best to go in. I said, I, I temporarily called my file landing party mm. because we have like, although that doesn't really fit tears of the sun. It, it kind of does, but not really. Yeah. Batch nine was choosing sides. Batch eight boiling point seven spectacles of slaughter. Batch six apocalypse. How five was child soldiers four star Wars cultures, three Afghanistan two nuclear annihilation, one formative, War films, three movies, 
per batch. This is batch 10. We made it. We're going to do a bonus batch because you want to round it out. You've said at around 33 um, episodes total so we can add up someday to 100. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of batches, Charles. And I think part of the reason that this one felt so long is because this project is really starting to accumulate and it's it's starting to feel more (laughs) regular and maybe a bit more like a grind perhaps. But this batch is interesting when you put it in those contexts. What do you see coming across as far as like, what do we get? Uh, well, we can look back at other batches. I have some thoughts on that in just a second. But like, what do these three movies say about like the specialists? We've talked a little bit about getting a Soderbergh war movie to be like, you know, that's Blink. He's the tech guy. He's going to hack into the mainframe. We don't really have that, but we kind of do. There's always like a communication specialists. There's like, uh, I don't know if the Star Trek people have an explosives guy, you know, but like, what are your thoughts across this batch in these movies? You know, just in general, we're going to run across, I think, um, the specialist on a mission genre a bunch. There's even subgenres among it, This, which is why I didn't pick, like, the Dirty Dozen, you know, because I feel like there's a possibility that you can find enough movies that have, like, the outcasts that are put together to make a to make a group of specialists this is not outcasts these are like people that are well respected within within their group going in and doing their thing yeah so this is its own like part of the that genre of the specialists so these are the ones that are called in by the officios to do a job so to speak right yeah definitely and then i realized just as i was driving a couple weeks back that Star Trek four actually falls technically within that genre, even though I'd never really thought of it in that way. But it's like, what more could you want than a bunch of specialists going on a covert mission to save the world? And we had said in chat that Star Trek four fits, but doesn't. It is atypical in that not only um, do we get a more representative crew of specialists still fairly tokenized we would say but at least more representative we said in that episode that star trek historically has grappled very visually with its own critical representative politics and things and so star trek is definitely um different but it is also very stenciled so could you just real quickly what do you see when you see the star trek landing party as like a crew of specialists in terms of just like the stencil. I said Shatner is a weird version of the leads from the other movies. Not just Shatner, Kirk in 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 general, Kirk has always kind of been stuck between two ideologies, you know, like he's a hero that appealed to people of the 60s era and that he's a handsome white guy that has a lot of sex, but at the same time they also like he lives correctly for the most part i mean my family always has debates about about kirk being being a weird main angry maniac sometimes if you especially if you watch the series like there's there's just like <laughs> moments, moments where you're like i don't know maybe this planet with all these people that live in absolute splendor even though the natural fora of the planet makes them high and kirk disagrees with that he's like he gets he gets like really chilled out and happy and then he like has this rage in the enterprise where he's like no fuck that these people aren't accomplishing anything the prime director doesn't doesn't apply in this situation this and that kirk is 
is fallible, I feel like. But I don't know if he's ever shown. Like, it's always being shown as being right, you know? Like, I don't know. I don't know if I agree or disagree with him in those situations. You would have to go into it. But in any case, this movie has all of those episodes to draw from. And it's neat to see how they take, I guess, the... I don't know if they meant it to be that way, but to take essentially the archetype of of these specialists going and doing a covert mission and using it in a positive manner. Spock could have been neck-pinching everybody, and they could have just phasered their way through through <laughs> everything, but they choose not to. And and it's neat. There is a rats, <laughs> right? I mean, right? I mean, I guess in the in the logic of Star Trek, there is a mirror evil universe that has all of this stuff going on. Uh, where the moment they realize they can time travel, they just immediately go back and just fuck with I it. I wanted Spark to neck pinch Kirk instead, and then just kneel <laughs> the punk and say, "Oh, I fucking no, oh, I mate," and just turn it up and start a circle pit in the back of the bus. That's what I wanted to see from Spark, but he doesn't break that way. I have so much to say about um, the characters in particular. I want to ask. So, going back to what you said about Kirk. And I think this is interesting because the other leads that we've had. So so here's the archetype of the squad. We'll start from the front. We've got the dude in charge, mm-hmm. right? You've got the guy in charge. And that's Gregory Peck in Guns of Neverone. And he is a mountain climber, mm-hmm. I suppose? He's the best mountain climber. You're late. Well, I'm sorry. My plane was attacked an hour out of Crete and we got into Alex on one engine, sir. I hear the Germans raised the price on you and Andrea Stavrou to 10,000 pounds apiece. Are you flattered? No, sir. How did you know that? I should do. But he's not a soldier until... That's the messed up thing, is that he is the human fly, and that he, at one point, had a technology that where he could transport himself up to the top. <laughs> but through an accident, he was merged with a fly, and he daren't use it again. It's too dangerous. Mm -hmm. They're like, can't we just use the machine? And he's like, no, no. He's just a one big eye. That's 100 eyes. How does it go? Help. (laughs) As he throws up on a donut and then eats it as it melts in his hand. (laughs) Movie. But um, so the point is this, though. (laughs) We've said Kirk is uh, uh, Kirk is military, not military. Whatever Starfleet um, is. The yeah. human fly. The human fly is, in fact, military. He was like in Crete or whatever, you oh. know, leading special okay. ops or something. Yeah. Okay. 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 See, I might have missed that part. I but prior saying, to okay. that. What's that? No, I'm going through the audio book right. right now. They make a big deal about how big of a deal he was. I guess you would, back yeah. in the day, you would know about those things more. It's kind of like how in a book... Or in a movie back in the day, you would see a newspaper where they're like, the two top cops. And it's like, I don't, I guess your town knows who the two top cops are. I don't fucking, I couldn't name one cop. (laughs) I was thinking about how like climbing a mountain at that point was a pretty big deal. And now you have to like parachute from orbit if you want people to pay attention to you. You have to climb it with nothing. Just absolutely like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. 
Vidu Mary John had an article, Visual Adaptation of Novels, a reading of the text and film cinematic versions of Guns of Navarone, that would be fun to revisit with you once you've gone through this book, because she had some fun points, and we talked about them back in that episode. But I want to just stick with this archetype trace for just one second. Um, I'm looking it up right now. Do you even remember the name of Bruce Willis's character in Tears of the Sun? No, fuck no. Because <laughs> I definitely... He's, he's in my nose He's, he's here, sad, yeah. grumpy, wet. It's Lieutenant Waters. Here we go. Just got it. My name is Lieutenant Waters. I'm with the U.S. Navy. I'm here to get you and your people out. It's been strongly suggested that we abandon these refugees out here. I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to do that. Can't do that. This is just cribbing a little bit from what you said. And it's more complex than this, but this is what we got. He said, white guy, lots of sex, kind of fallible, stuck between two ideologies. He's in charge and the movie kind of sides with him, mm-hmm. right? We get weird versions of that. Like, it's so interesting to me how, especially with Kirk, because Kirk is his, like, like famously kind of hit and miss as far as his efforts to do good by progressive politics in a very like um white male kind of way the way it's like i'm trying hard but not aware of my own privilege and shit right okay but they're all kind of the same right like they're they're a very similar stencil in each regard and i'm curious if you would agree that number one they all share a fundamental component of what we'll call physical force and control they all have the ability to exert their will over the environment or over other people and or over other people correct mm-hmm. yeah okay number two they are all marked by what we would call occupational achievement so the human fly okay cool mm-hmm. kirk is also fairly well known right he's a fairly famous captain okay an admiral on star trek 4 when we meet him. right right who gets busted down to captain <laughs> we said that's a little bit better than getting busted down to private i would imagine but i don't know my ranking very well so what about you charles would you rather be busted to captain or to private well it depends on how much responsibility okay. you have when you're a private you do more work but you get to chill mentally there you go willis's character marked by occupational achievement he's a seal is that all we get is there ever a moment where they're like oh it's lieutenant waters he was known as the you know i don't think so he's the seal i guess you fucking go to and you don't even give him a break right right okay even if he has an eye gash uh the next one i want to ask you about is what we're going to call frontiersmanship and frontiersmanship is explicitly going to be out 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 way out way out the environment is going to be itself a threat and one of the primary ways that we're going to navigate that environment is through just steely-eyed shooting. We're just pretty good at shooting. Guns of Navarone is an odd miss. Does Peck's character shoot anyone in that movie? God. I mean, maybe when the German patrol boat shows up, he probably shoots people on the, and that part. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There's a shootout there. Okay, so, so and, and another way of looking at it, instead of just being the shooter, is we could say good in a shootout or good in a fight. Mm-hmm. Right, may not shoot someone, but could potentially throw them through a window, perhaps, or something like that, out mm-hmm. onto the street. If we're looking at the frontier trope as our kind of guide here, okay. we have plenty of Star Trek episodes where Kirk does that, but Kirk doesn't do any of that in this movie. Okay, they're all heterosexual, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Last. Well, you don't know about about what's his name. Yeah, Peck's character. There's no love scene in that for Peck's. No, there is. I think he, it's implied that he that they have sex. Yes, and okay. I think they do kiss as well. In Tears of the Sun, Bruce Willis's character, the IMDb says, had a shot. They they shot it where he kisses Kendricks in the helicopter instead of her just holding his head inexplicably. Um, but they don't. 
but the and I don't know that there's really tension. I mean, we, the the audience imagines it there. We, the audience will maybe put it there, but I don't know that the movie ever really makes a point. It's, it's not even. It we don't even hear about his family or anything. We don't even hear about. He doesn't have a wife back home. If you think of maybe another. A movie that you could watch with Tears of the Sun would be Last of the Mohicans. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, there's none of those moments between like Hawkeye right. and, um, you know, there's none of that stuff with it, it would be like she would come to him and Hawkeye would be like, sorry, I'm on watch. She, she would come to him and be like, you should get some sleep. And he would be like, I'm on watch. And Aaron would be like, yeah, you dumb lady. <laughs> she doesn't. <laughs> I think it'd be amazing if he's like, oh, good idea, and goes to sleep on his watch, and it's all her fault. <laughs> they rail noisily in the dark, like a French a French guy in fucking buckskins and shit with a musket, and they just hear, like, two people just railing over a log, <laughs> just noisily, just <laughs> echoing in the, the dark. You know how, just, like, like, sticks n- and logs breaking <laughs> like it's a moose stomping through the woods. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, just this, like... He's very vocal. <laughs> <laughs> We're having a little too There's much none fun. of that. And, um, <laughs> Tears of the Sun doesn't have it. No, okay, we agree. You have to have like the deaf guards that are in Guns of Navarone. You know how there was like a lot of shots where there was like Gregory Peck blasting a guy with the with his silenced pistol and the guy's like falling over in the thing and then there's just... 20 feet up the wall there is a guy walking with his rifle over his shoulder just not even stirring like he can hear any of that yeah (laughs) there needs to be that so it would be like the noise the people noisily doing it and then like maybe like two guys off in the distance being like maybe i hear something and then they keep walking on they they stop and they listen and one of them goes it's probably just the wind <laughs> frogs yeah <laughs> which kind of yes <laughs> okay maybe uh let's get back to this stencil though bruce willis famous cis hat white guy though i think that's that's fairly straightforward last one and i think that this is true for all of them in different ways but it might be a little tricky. the navy would have never allowed them to to have him be a gay character when is that right. going to happen that'll that'll be the liberal nightmare that the republicans hate and also that the leftists hate Yeah, as soon as they get on the helicopter he and the sniper guy like draw each other in for a passionate kiss and say you know i love you i'm glad we made it and that's the big romantic sunset outro i just don't think that's gonna happen the correct i think the correct military thing would be that those guys couldn't be in the same unit together if they're gonna have a romantic relationship right they would maybe have to be like a guy on the ship by coincidence. Or they wouldn't be telling anyone except for those little poignant moments on the helicopter. I don't know. The old don't ask, don't tell comes back. What's the inclusive um, rainbow missile version of the movie of Tears of the Sun is yeah. is my question. Where it doesn't actually solve the greater problem, it's just more inclusive. Right. The last one is what we call this kind of gray area of unaccountability. Each of these people, the argument is going to say, is going to do something like violent, um, kind of rapey or commodifying of women or something like that. Um, Something that is arguably like just wrong, like maybe we shouldn't do that. But because of a bunch of like wrinkles and a bunch of because statements around them in the context, we're going to find ways to say that that was just a tough choice that they made or something like that. I don't have especially vivid examples of this, but it kind of feels right. Again, Peck's character may be standing out, but I feel like based on the age that it's made, 
There's going to be times in that movie that we can go back and maybe find something. This one might be a miss. The other one that might be a miss is called Familial Patriarchy. I don't know that any of these folks are overtly dads, although Kirk does have several moments where his son is dead. And we talk about how weirdly he doesn't seem to bent up about that. And you kind of explain that. Willis's character has no family. Is he a father character to the people in the squad? Is Peck's character a father? Yeah, you're making it. And I'm like, I don't know that that fits because we've talked about how that kind of fits across the board in military. It really too. leaned. I was going to say, it's like, I was I was about to say, oh, yeah, no, there was that, was it? And then I realized I was thinking about Gene Hackman in okay. oh, right. Behind Enemy Behind Lines. Enemy and I was like, that they one. leaned heavy into the father-son stuff. They really did. In, in that. But they didn't really touch on that they should have had tom scarrett drop in a son or something even though they look like they're about the same age yeah there's no moment where tom scarrett's like calling him sonny mm-hmm. he's just taking calls out on the flight deck i don't like this <laughs> anywho these six things physical force and control occupational achievement family patriarchy the frontiersmanship heterosexuality and this gray area of unaccountability those are six stencils from um trujillo and he came up with, well, five of them are from Trujillo, and the last one comes from Atkinson and Califel. I found these in Atkinson and Califel's article about Darth Vader, and they're like, this is Darth Vader. And they source it to Trujillo's article called Hegemonic Masculinity on the Mound, Media Representations of Nolan Ryan and American Sports Culture. And what they're arguing, and I think compellingly so, is that these six, I call them teeth. Think of a, a, a tool with teeth, like a saw has teeth. And there are six teeth to this saw. And, you know, if all six bite, then that's the right saw for the job. And if one tooth bites, then it's like, wow, this, this tool is just not cutting. It's not doing anything. But what we've just said is of these six, Four of them come back as a pretty solid, or three of them are real solid hits. And the fourth one, heterosexuality, we're kind of like, that one is is lurking, but it's not super overt. Familial patriarchy, we said, kind of misses. And it's just interesting to me because, again, part of this project for me, beyond just learning how war movies are made and why war movies are made and who makes war movies, those are like the production politics of it. I want. I've, I keep saying again and again. I'm going to come back to this question of like who's in charge and and what are they made of and and what do we know about them? And I just think it's interesting that even though this batch is fairly disparate, we said they all kind of do this in a weird way. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to see how what they do with with Kirk to undo a lot of the old archetype. You know, looking back at this, it is interesting to see how deliberate it is. Yeah. I want to eventually talk to a Star Trek writer. Somebody was was complaining about Star Trek being woke on Twitter. Good. Glenn Greenwald <laughs> or some stupid ass like that. And um Star Trek being woke. Wow, rich. <laughs> yeah. And and there is a Deep Space 9 writer who is telling them that that they were stupid as shit. You know, it's like, let's just talk to to one of those people because Kirk is heterosexual. I mean, we like they don't have to they don't have to have a bunch of stuff in the movie about it because we have almost 100 episodes or whatever (laughs) where he's fairly overt, where he's romancing like everybody from every planet. (laughs) But in this movie, they choose not to like have it really pay off. It's she walks away from him. She, she yeah, he exactly. goes for it and she like gives him a kiss and then just pivots and trots off to a life of science in the stars. And it's like yeah. good for her. <laughs> like they say in your century, I don't even have your telephone number. <laughs> How will I find you? Don't worry. I'll find you. 
see around the galaxy. You know how how they have the the born hot yesterday sort of thing, right? You know, had Kirk stayed around and had a spaceship. It would have almost been that where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, you, you're so alluring because right. everything you do is fucking new and fantastic to me. She's just totally naive but at that point, turned into a little right. girl, right? The, mm-hmm. the moment you get to the future with him, it's like, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> she just There's so many possibilities here. I just cannot be tied down with this. She just rolls her sleeves up and goes to space work. <laughs> it's so amazing. See you around the galaxy. Sorry, I'm part of... I joined Starfleet. Yeah, I'm literally like an expert now on something that no one knows anything about, so I have to go be very important. And I have the opportunity to learn more than I ever could have possibly learned in my time, and it's so fucking exciting to me. It's really cool. It is really very cool um, to see how this happens. This is Jillian, is that right? Catherine Hicks' Mm -hmm. character? Yeah. That moment was so great. And the look on Kirk's face when she walks away, it's so brief. See you around the galaxy. He's kind of sitting there smiling like, well, okay. I'm like, (laughs) it's what you need to see. You know, it's like, this is what rejection looks like. And it's not so bad. You can totally handle it. Okay. It's fine. Yeah. That's what I that's what I like about that that Star Trek does have I don't know. I was talking with with um I think maybe it was Eli a while back cuz he was doing like a binge of Star Trek as he was editing and he he was like, "Wow, a lot of this is really horny." And I was thinking it's like, <laughs> "Yeah, it makes sense because technically I guess in the Star Trek universe people are very respectful of each other but at the same time they are also like you're living in the Olympic village of specialists <laughs> you know like like people that are absolutely at the top of their game wearing really tight and you clothes. respect them for it right <laughs> wearing, wearing uniforms that the computer can program to the millimeter on your body <laughs> kind of getting a little feisty just thinking about it (laughs) yeah so it's like and look even if you're getting turned down you have a holodeck so (laughs) not so bad again rejection not so bad if you can handle it like but it's great it's funny to see then um i think i sent you that article that was that was about um Everybody is beautiful, but nobody is horny. Believe it or not, Charles, that made it onto a great big screen in my classroom because they, too, wanted to talk about the shower scene in Starship Troopers. And I was like, my (laughs) buddy just sent me something on this. Everyone is beautiful. No one is horny. Go ahead. And so that kind of works in with what's his name? Um, Waters or whatever his name is in in Tears of the Sun. Bruce Willis, yeah. But that's like kind of going into that era where our heroes are stoic and sexless, you know? They don't have time. It's a, kind of a bummer. You know, like even Gregory Peck in the fucking 60s got more action than our Navy SEAL guy who, right. I mean, I guess they just don't have time with, for that. Well, we learned about their little song. They definitely have time for it. They just sneak out the back door when it's done and never talk to you again. <laughs> Remember Lone Survivor? They've got their little jingle. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the other interesting one that you brought up was the environment being being the danger frontiersmanship yeah Yeah, and thinking of that as being 1986 or 87 san francisco Mm -hmm. um being the danger to (laughs) to to the crew where no one has gone before san francisco (laughs) (laughs) which is yeah i mean i guess in that in that world it's 
it's the difference between like us and going back to the like 16, 1700s. Yeah. What would I do with those, for those fucking toothless freaks? You'd have sex with them? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Witch burning monsters. You have to find the one that's like, maybe doesn't think that, I don't know, brushing your teeth with grit and ash is a good idea. And, and maybe you should wash your hands occasionally. And you're like, ah. People would blacken their teeth on purpose because rich people's teeth would fall out because all they would do is eat candy. This is Bryson's book on home, and it talks about how culture changes over time and how poor people would literally blacken their teeth on purpose to make it look like they just sat around and ate candy all day. And it's kind of like attaching diamonds to your teeth or something like that. You get it is the comparative that I draw just in a 180 degree different direction um, as soon as the conversation. And it would be very hard to navigate that space they talk about my favorite from that book is having a sofa in your living room would be is like erotic Mm. because there's nothing upholstered nothing is upholstered except the bed that's it and so if you put a chair in your living room that is upholstered it's kind of sexual it's like and and in the car kate and i'm like it's kind of like having a dildo like left out in your living room it's like what's that doing out here (laughs) and that would be a hard pivot for all of us um but the vocabulary of uh, allure would probably remain like they say in your century i don't even have your telephone number (laughs) (laughs) how will i find you The cut I did on Good Aliens from the other project that I'm involved in emphasizes how good aliens typically do make us kind of horny and leave us with good feelings and lessons learned. So there's all of that. They also talk about how good aliens are typically in support roles. They're typically sacrificial. Um, They typically know that they're suspicious and they have to live within being suspicious. This brings me to the second bit in the archetype. We've just talked about the head cheese, the big cheese there. Let's go to the number two. I don't know that there is a number two in Tears of the Sun. There's no clear number two. There's just a bunch of dude really. in the squad. Okay. But this now brings up what I think is a fun comparison between Spock. Humans make illogical decisions. And um, Andre, the character from Guns of Navarone. Mm-hmm. Surprised. I did not think I would see you again so soon. When the time came, I would find you. Spock is eminently trustworthy, but not in the voyage home because he's kind of undead. It would not be proper to refer to you as Jim while you're in command, Admiral. Also, I must apologize for my attire. I seem to have misplaced my uniform. Are you sure this is such a bright idea? What do you mean? I mean him. Back at his post like nothing happened. I don't know if you've got the whole picture or not, but he's not exactly working on all thrusters. And so now he's a little dopey and he doesn't really, he's not the same Spock. And it's not the same suspicion that we're casting on Andre's character in the scenes in Guns of Navarone, but it's kind, it's functionally the same. He didn't say a word to me, never looked at me. But after it was over, he turned to me and he said that as far as he was concerned, it wasn't the Germans who were responsible, but me. Me and my stupid Anglo-Saxon decency. And he told me what he was going to do and when. Do you think he still needs to do it? He's from Crete. Those people don't make idle threats. It's wavering trust on this character. Can we trust this character Mm -hmm. or not? What do you see in that comparison across those two? Because I just think it's an odd crosscut to look at them both either from the lens of just individual characters or as they are seen from the the big cheese character there. I mean, I don't know how much there is to to dig into it, but I've said it before. 
you know, you always need you always need to have a a down sergeant character that like is there to back up the the captain. And it's a fun character to always have. Um, usually it's an Irish guy if you're talking about aliens. <laughs> so it's nice to think of Spock being that guy to Kirk who carries stuff out, but also speaks reason yeah. or, or contributes to the conversation. Kirk also has bones that like those are the, the, tr- the three people. Right. Um, Spock is like the logic bones is the emotion. Right. And, and Kirk combines the two. Well, and Franklin is kind of the number two. To peck there's in like a lot of ways but but there's definitely like the, the the number two may not necessarily be the number two in rank but it's like the right the second character that's tied to the you know the and you think character. of like master and commander there's like the yeah, betnay those two are cast yeah. so well in that movie oh god i'm so sad they never made a series off of that there's there's none of that in in tears of the sun and no. that movie that movie is forgettable to me. And I wonder if there's just like, is it just because it doesn't have any of that kind of character relationship? You said in the episode, there's no stakes. We said there's no real stakes for the shootouts. They're just kind of going through the motions. We don't know anything about the characters. There's no relationships. It's not even that. It's like, like they needed more scenes where, where as they're laying down, you're seeing the forest getting destroyed the way it does in Predator. Yeah. You know, like they're standing up and shooting and it's like you just never feel like right. at any time they're reacting to actual bullets coming by them. Right. It feels as stakeless as as the moment in Navarone where the dude is like shooting the MP40 from the hip and and all the guys are falling down like right before he dies. Mm-hmm. It just it just feels like everybody's waiting for their part of the story when they die as opposed to the threat of random death at the end of a bullet being fired at you from a fucking guy behind a tree. Like the dogs that are coming after Chekhov in Ahura are just yeah. as threatening as the guns in the jungle in Tears of the Sun. And it's They're because, more threatening. Right? I felt like I was... we don't want them to get caught. We don't want them to get caught. <laughs> in Tears of the Sun, it's like, they're not going to get caught. <laughs> they're I mean, eventually at the end, when people start dying, like it, it becomes... I don't know, man. Like, I don't understand why why Tears of... I can't quite figure out why Tears of the Sun wasn't more exciting and why Guns of Navarone is is better. But Guns of Navarone has characters that I want to see. Like, that's the other thing about, like, these this stoic lone survivor type stuff. Like, I guess if I'm going to watch it, if I'm going to watch something like that, then just give me a based on a true story thing. Don't give me the made up thing. Because if you're going to give me the made up thing, then make up more stuff that makes people more interesting. Technically, in all of these situations, you can make arguments about who the aliens are. Mm. But I feel like it's going to be the teams that come in are like the visiting aliens. Like the Star Trek, the group of of Star Trek people, when they land in San Francisco and they're all walking around in their future outfits, they are aliens even though the most of even though technically Spock is the only alien. Yeah. It was about Star Trek where we said like what would happen to the Star Trek party if they landed in Colorado and they found the Wolverines. <laughs> and you're like, "Oh, they would teach them how to not use militarism." And I'm like, "No, they would take a basket of sandwiches from a nice girl on a bike and then they would experience C4 up close and personal." <laughs> and uh, Wolverines! <laughs> Wolverines! They, they would. They'd be like, bunch of aliens coming down. Nah, nah, nah. Last time the Russians did that, we know how that landed, so we're not here for it. Really, all I would say about that, and we could dig here if you want, the whole point about alienhood, the whole point 
is that there is no such thing as an alien. It's always de- defined from a position of privilege, a position called here, a position called us, a position called normal. And the question of what kind of alien and how do you know is inherently a question of who's operating power structures or who's whose lenses of power do we care about and so when star trek lands a landing party on an alien planet we say uh we the viewing audience think of the planet and all their inhabitants as aliens because we identify with and sit with the narratives lenses and frames of power of the star trek crew but people will always make it a point to be like you know to et you're the alien or whatever the indicator is going to be where do we find alienhood rhetoric yeah the alien planet yeah but when the alien planet is like our modern time it's interesting what you do mm-hmm. what, what then it, it how it contrasts what star trek is with what our time is earth but when spock Judging by the pollution content of the atmosphere, I believe we have arrived at the latter half of the 20th century. Well done, Spock. Admiral, if I may, we are probably already visible to the tracking devices of the time. Quite right, Mr. Spock. Engage cloaking device, Mr. Tigger. We are crossing the Terminator into night. And then seeing it from that point of view that we've been looking at other planets you know for so many years yeah i don't know what do you think about that so marciniak's book has a really good section on bordering how alienhood rhetoric is going to create a border and in this instance it's time and we're going to be jumping back and forth across that border and then the question is what kind of good alien and she talks about the laudatory cosmopolitan good alien they're typically people that is that Catherine hicks this this to me is like um kirk and them because you think you think about yeah, Catherine Hicks at the end for sure, for sure. She she crosses the border, puts on a uniform, goes straight to work. The Marciniak says the laudatory transnational alien is going to be cosmopolitan, is going to follow the rules, is going to get in line, is going to pay their bills, um, is going to be willing to talk about their place, is going to be willing to talk about their culture and show you their culture because they're not from around here. Uh, you get it, but 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 by showing it to you, they fulfill this kind of multicultural. Um, like like myth of inclusion that that culture wants. And so they're very happy about it. And what's fun about that movie is you see Kirk talking about jumping back and forth. He's like, oh, yes, we have a starship. And oh, yes, this is what we've got. And, oh, I'll, I'll just be there in the field. And, and every time they talk about it, the movie kind of womp womps it away. It's always this kind of joke. And it's always in a way that it really assures us that they are not threatening the boundaries. They're not threatening the borders. They're stepping across the line. Kind of like when you go to the four corners and say, I'm in Utah, I'm over here, I'm over here. Oh, isn't that neat? You get it? It's like, you can do that because that doesn't threaten anyone. But as soon as you start saying, I'm in Mexico, I'm in the United States, I'm in Mexico, I'm in the United States, then suddenly that boundary crossing becomes much, unless you've got a passport, unless you're flying in a private jet, if you're like a, uh, uh, you know something like that but he's but i guess the aliens have to do that in order to in order to they have to consciously make themselves non-threatening exactly right because they are threatened the the whole point of good aliens is that they have to fit into the tiniest box possible you you have to do everything that marciniak says you also right. have to be very sacrificial you um have to be they have to be like bad at driving they they're hungry a lot there's all these vulnerability lenses good aliens well what um, i'm saying is that is naked. that is the 
is the alien doing that as a conscious character choice or is that some shit that the writers wrote what i mean is that kirk technically not an alien a human but an alien in the time period he's a border crosser right has to frame everything in such a way to make himself non-threatening and and like code switch right in a sense yeah and it is a conscious choice yep. because he finds our time period threatening whether it's it's a strategic choice by the character written by the writers or a political byproduct of just the writers being who they are in either case we will say it's really underscoring how alienhood really enforces and expects certain performances about power. My, my, my classic point on this is always Superman. He's always very, very willing to like, you know, point to himself as different, but then not. He doesn't want to step too far forward and take over for people. He's got a very patriarchal relationship in terms of. And so for him, it's like the handholding of the humanity so that he doesn't threaten them too much. And people will say that's a very benevolent. But but here, too, it's like we're still just underscoring these are the expectations that we have that you cannot violate <laughs> or else we're going to treat you with the business end of the national security state. Yeah, none of that behavior in Tears of the Sun. There are aliens that show up into their land and threaten them immediately right. with their guns. I talk about in this this um, presentation I just did how between old Superman 2 and Man of Steel, he goes from being a good alien to being a bad alien. The trailer for Man of Steel is like an alien movie. It looks like the Predator trailer. You My name is General Zod. For some time, your world has sheltered one of my citizens. I request that you return this individual to my custody. To Kal-El, I say this. Surrender within 24 hours. Or watch this world suffer the consequences. The trailer for Superman 2, he's like good alien. Think of it. Three super villains. Like Star Wars horns and everything. Continues in Paris with Lois Lane. I believe this is your floor. And the romance continues. And he's literally hugging a flag in Superman 2. Good afternoon, Mr. President. Sorry I've been away so long. I won't let you down again. And in Man of Steel, there's the cannon pointing at the the, the black superhero up in the sky. The, the tank is like pointing at it. And I talk about how his relationship to the date changes drastically. The stakes for Superman are the same. He doesn't care. They can shoot him with that howitzer. He's fine. Yeah, he has to wear handcuffs, but he doesn't fucking care. Like, Superman does not care. It is about the audience understanding that if you come to, quote, us this way, quote, okay, great, Superman, hooray. But if you come to, quote, us this way, boo, boo, here comes the state, here comes the state, here comes the state. And in this sense, what we have is Kirk coming to us in this way. Bearing to the whales? 283 degrees, 15.2 kilometers. 
Everybody remember where we parked. <laughs> and so it's it's okay. It's like, yay, good alien. We get the start. We get the Star Trek horns. It's interesting to me to see the way alienhood is navigated in cinema because it is instructive. People will look up to Kirk. People will try to be Kirk-ish when they go out there. <laughs> it's so- that's the that's the hope, right? Yeah. Is that well, yes, is that no. you want to be <laughs> if you're going to want to be a strong stereo or archetypal male or anything at least for god's sakes be a kirk then be the stoic navy seal that just goes from one mission to the next to the next to the next i really appreciate the takeaway that star trek is fumbling the ball a lot but that shows that they're aware of how precarious it is and they're always trying and there are and it's it somebody said i mean twitter film discourse is usually awful but every so often somebody will will have an interesting thought brilliant stuff on twitter there's brilliant stuff on twitter this guy named jordan peterson was saying something really interesting um charles you're breaking up i can't hear you red alert (laughs) red alert (laughs) somebody was talking about um about why there's so much evil superman stuff nowadays and that they're kind of getting tired of it and one of the responses was that perhaps evil superman was a response to us post 9-11 and global war and terror in distrusting the American mission around the world and the way that we present ourselves. And that's why we start reimagining Superman as being evil. I was thinking that, you know, old school Superman and his nice ideals belongs more in a Star Trek world. The ultra bleak like DC world doesn't suit Superman yeah. as as how Superman is. You know, it's like everybody wants things kind of more complicated, and it would be nice to see Superman do a Star Trek four. That was the Superman four with Richard Pryor or whatever. Effective immediately, I'm going to rid our planet of all nuclear weapons. They're of a similar era. I have so much on this, Charles. I say that when people roll their eyes sometimes and I worry you're not doing that now. I'm seeing it in my head, some audience folks. My my speech talks about how in Man of Steel, at the end of Man of Steel, they invoke what we call the rhetoric of 9-11 to cast fear on Superman. The end of Man of Steel is one of the most... When Kate and I covered it for the Alien Movie Project, one article says it's like a total barrage on the senses. It, it takes forever. And I said before that movie came out, if Superman is going to fight Zod, they're going to have to level Manhattan. That's what they're going to have to do. They can't They can't crash a helicopter behind a barn like they do in Superman 2. The spectacle is going to have to be truly something else. And they really do wrap him in crumbling buildings, twisting metal, screaming people, billowing smoke. The, the picture I have is Bruce Wayne running towards the smoke from Dawn of Justice, and I'm like, maybe he can throw a batarang at it. Oh, the images of 9-11 did to, to action spectacle what right. the fucking Hubble Space Telescope did for space movies. Brilliant. I love this. I mean, this is interesting. Lechuga's argument is that alien affects are growing more intense as a product of technology, but also strategic interests. Um, but here's my fun contribution, I hope. At the beginning of Dawn of Justice, Superman has to go to court for all that shit. And um, in the the shot outside the court for just several seconds, in my class we say this is like $16,000 a second if you're looking at Men in Black or something like that. So this is a lot of money. 
there's a sign with a hate term that I'll say exactly once. It says illegal alien. And I, I think that is the first time ever that that word is thrown at Superman. And that's amazing because the dude's been an alien since 1920. If you are a listener and you can point me to a comic book that has Superman being called this from before this movie, your name will be in my book. I will put your name in my book because I'm about to publish this claim. And what this shows is kind of like what you're saying, that that the kind of global war on on terror has fundamentally recast and reframed the ways that we look at pretty much every cultural icon. I, the, the fun, the really fun part about my demonstration is the poster for Superman 2 has the Twin Towers in it. And I say Superman is not the only icon changing over time. They're linked. They're connected. It's so interesting, Charles. And I do think it relates to this movie. Let's trace it back to these the, this batch. Because in this batch, I think in each case, you've got people dropping in to try to do some good. You've got people taking matters into their own hands, taking extreme risks, going to extreme lengths putting themselves in extreme vulnerability to do the good and they're going to blow some stuff up or they're going to risk stuff getting blown up there's part of me that's like they are stealing nuclear material from a navy vehicle like yeah. is there a world where that <laughs> could potentially be bad i don't know <laughs> like, that would have been an interesting poster for the movie it was would be like a cross cut of a Chekhov laid out on the ground and a bunch of marines pointing their guns at him yeah. star trek for the voyage home <laughs> charged imagery of Uhura hiding as a guy with a German shepherd lurks above her. The voyage home. Well, we wanted to talk a little bit more about the, 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 the archetype, and we don't have time to go through every single person. I feel like there's always at least a weapons or demo person, and then there's always at least a communications person. Is that true? So we're going to have weapons, you gotta demo, have the combo person, yeah. com, the person in charge, the number two, is there any other archetype position? The local. There's going to be the local. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There should be like a partisan person that's helping you when you show up. Yeah. All three of these have that. Yeah. And I think that that you should get extra points if one of your people is a knife person. Right. And that's all they did. But they don't like stabbing. <laughs> <laughs> they're right. a little burned but, out but they're it. but they're known as being the one that's 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 amazing with the blade yeah this is stanley baker butcher Brown. it made me very happy when <laughs> guns and navarone had a knife person now every navy seal wants to be a knife person right. so they're going to show that and that was a bummer to learn about tears of the sun had a lot of knife play we said and a lot of fixating on mm -hmm. knives and imdb was like they use the real knives and everyone was so excited right. about that and there it is Yep. And then the book Alpha taught me all about um, Navy SEAL pirate culture yeah. and how um, how killing somebody with a knife is really a big deal and something that they really want to do. And there's that scene where like Chekhov is trying to break out after he gets left behind and he just like slits the throat of that one guard. He slits that one guy's throat yep. 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 Okay. Okay. and pretty much opens his, his body like a Pez dispenser. The guy just gargles and falls over with his fingers going into the gap mm -hmm. trying to, to clog it up. Oops. <laughs> so it's fun looking at Anthony Quinn and Starvos and then cutting over and looking at Leonard Nimoy and Spock and looking at William Shatner as Kirk and cutting over and looking at Peck as Mallory. We don't want to read too much into it. But again, you could add all sorts of different masculine pairs and see quite a bit. Ohura. Let's talk about Ohura for just a minute because we did say that it's interesting. She's like, uh, Nichelle Nichols, so famous. Famously, Martin Luther King is like, stay on Star Trek. Yes, they tokenize you, but black kids all over the world are seeing black people on spaceships. And this is the most important thing in the world right now. Um, her character 
we say gets kind of marginalized, kind of set to the side throughout all of it, but at least she's outside. <laughs> this is the, well, I mean, <laughs> she gets more to do in, in this movie. I think than she, this is the strength of star Trek four is that it's a crew movie. The crew gets to do stuff and everybody, you know, even though they, the crew doesn't all get a bunch of stuff, they all get something to do. And that can't be, that's not true. I think for all of the, episodes and movies and stuff a lot of them are disposable in other instances i mean the honestly like the one that comes after this i watched the one time in the theater with my family and i couldn't tell you if i've seen it ever since because Mm -hmm. it was but i've watched this one a million times because i just generally i enjoy it and it's a good vibe i don't know like that tears of the sun obviously like there's does it give you a good vibe did Guns of Navron give me a good vibe? Kind of Guns of Navron gave me a good vibe. I, I feel like James Jones talks about Guns of Navron in, in his article about the war movie. That's right from that time period that that movie came out. And he's like, I can't even be mad at this because, I mean, this isn't even a war movie, right? Like, this is just a lark. It's a movie around a war. <laughs> right. And so it's, but that was, I think maybe my complaint is that it's fun. It's fun. And, and. Star Trek Four is fun. I think if I, if you're going to redo Guns of Navarone, you have to these days. You have to be more clear what Nazis are outside of their aesthetic. Mm-hmm. You have to. Uh, we have to start understanding what fascism is and teach it to people, <laughs> because otherwise they don't fucking know. We don't know what it is outside of people in tight uniforms and jack boots and a swastika like unless it's like absolutely drawn out for them people will absolutely believe nazi shit yeah until the guy's dressed in a nazi uniform and then they'll be like oh there's the that's the, weird the command and i agree that it has to be taught because we have to re- remember that's how memory works is remembering so we have to make sure that people do not forget the way that nazism is enabled and the ideologies The bridge is very good at all the little subtleties that kind of go into making up Nazi ideology, but we said it even misses there in some ways. I think a big part of it, too, is just even outside of that command, there's this other angle that gets picked up in that era and carried forward in a lot of ways, which is that we will cast Nazis primarily because we like the aesthetic and also we need to kill a lot of something and we we don't want to feel bad about it. And so we will cast the Nazi aesthetic on so-called stormtroopers, or we will um, just put, you know, James or uh, Indiana Jones on a tank and he'll be like, Nazis, I hate these guys. And the audience will be like, yeah, and we don't want to get into why, but, you know, we just want to da 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 And so that's where we're going to go. Yeah. And there's both of those. One of them is just a short, cheap, easy thrill, you know, get rid of a bunch of bad guys. And the other one is like those bad guys had a very, very specific vocabulary and and performability and infrastructure of enabling that that in many ways the West was a part of. Like we can look at all sorts of American heroes and huge rallies in Madison Square Garden and all these things about the way that Nazism is still with us in ways that we'd rather forget, I guess. I don't know. Got to touch on this. The Star Trek approach to violence just stands out. We we said specifically the phasers. The phasers get used to mm. shut a door and then one does not work and gets left behind. And that's it for Star Trek 4. Um, Tears of the Sun, just gun orgy. 
Mm-hmm. You know, very, very predictable gun orgy. Good Claymore action. Yeah. Guns of Navarone, what really sets it apart is how well it does the adventure. And in particular, I keep coming back to the storm and going up the cliff. Mm-hmm. Like to me, that is where, the, and then where they sat down at the wedding and they looked like absolute dirt piles amongst a bunch of very well-dressed people who clearly do not know them. And yet all of the people are looking at them and saying nothing, you know, and then the girl comes with the flower like that to me was intense. You get it. All of that was really, and that to me is a kind of adventure making in the second sense with the Nazis lurking. It relies on the threat of violence and the promise of violence. They seemed to be more afraid of getting shot at than the Navy SEALs were. Right. Definitely true. And again, you told me that that tactic where they all walk in a bunch straight forward and shoot like that is what they do. Cool, fine, great. But as an audience, when I see that, I'm like, they don't care. <laughs> this does Technically, not threatening I mean, me. it's like the way they did it is like it's like it feels so literal. Yeah. To what the to what it would actually look like, right. like it would I feel like it would look more like a dude sprinting to the next place of cover. I mean, you are supposed to lay down overwhelming fire and, and move, move forward, forward into the ambush. Yeah. Yeah. But it looks, I mean, there was people shooting at each other, like naked gun distance from, from each other, like fucking bloody angle yeah. with machine guns and not quite reacting to the amount of muzzle flash that was going on. Yeah. There's a certain level of like, it's not going to be cinematic if you just, if you showed a fight the real way where it's part of me thought they were so close together so they could get them all in the shot. <laughs> I was just no, like, totally. no, exactly. To them all in the shot. And we want that shot. To right. Be like we're <laughs> when you're watching old television, that's in four by three. And you think about, Oh, in reality, I would be talking to this person like this freaking close. <laughs> and I don't talk I to somebody to like that. Look how big their nose is on that. Like people's noses on movie screens are like a story and a half. <laughs> Anyway. I was thinking that. Also, the only movie I've ever watched or television show is Roxanne. Cinema likes proximity. <laughs> it likes getting in close. <laughs> but if you can show that danger, Tears of the Sun didn't show it. At times, Guns of Navarone, like when they when they were up the side of the mountain and the guy like shot the flare at them and they start getting shot at. That was awesome. That was they scary. react like they don't fucking want to be on the receiving end of any of that shooting. Right. It doesn't seem like that until the very dire end of Tears of the Sun. Yeah. And because of it, it just like it fails to to elicit any sort of I don't know. Like, I don't remember having this reaction to it when I first saw it. I remember just thinking like, eh, that was fun. Yeah. And I didn't even think that it was fun this time. Like it was, it felt like a slog. It felt like work the first time I saw it. I think I told you, I don't think I finished that movie because the last half of the mm. movie, I was like, I don't remember any of this. And I might've just turned it off once they got her in the jungle. And I was like, well, they did it. End of the movie. What's funny to me is that we said- I like Monica Bellucci, but <laughs> yeah. We said that Star Trek Four made a, a lot of money. It made a lot of money. It totally, like, again, it's the power of a franchise. It's riding a very, very famous wave. But people in a writer's room were like, can they literally save whales? Can we literally save whales? And they're like, let's green light this. And they went with that, bold, and and they made money. They made a lot of money. But what people are going to say, they can make more money if they make it look like the deck of an aircraft carrier. And if we have ships coming out into cross-firing lasers (laughs) and one of them gets clipped by a laser and you see people get sucked out into space as it spins madly out of control and explodes into the bridge of a nearby vehicle you get it like you can make more money charles and 
that's what breaks my heart is that to me, the takeaway for Star Trek Four is you could literally make what I would call, frankly, one of the dumbest premises for a Star Trek movie I've ever heard into a nice, enjoyable, fun, rollick. Like, I liked it. I'm like, this is great. And it can make a lot of money, but it won't be enough money if it can make more money. Yeah, well. And it can always make more money if we can wrap it in that aesthetic of war. That's why we have one million freaking Star Trek or Star Wars movies now. Yeah. The fire hose and spinoffs. I mean, we have a lot of Star Trek spinoffs too. I guess. I mean, they have a lot of movies. They're trying to catch up. But the the cinematic Star Trek of the new movies has been struggling to find an audience. Yeah. You know, J.J. Abrams. I don't know. He repackages a lot of old stuff, mm-hmm. and it's okay to to reimagine the old stuff. It's more fun what they're doing on the on the television series. Agreed. I like Lower Decks a lot. I really like the way Lower Decks yeah. lets them kind of camp it up. And again, you and I have been saying a lot, and maybe we'll have a little off-season bit where we just talk about Star Trek Discovery, because it's doing so many like very over-representation things, but also just subtle narrative standpoint stuff, mm-hmm. where like the article that we read uh, says, like, we're not going to kill today. It's like, let's find ways around this this very predictable mechanism. I don't know. I tell my students there's almost always a scene where the gun falls and skitters across the floor and then it cuts to the faces of the people fighting and then it cuts to the gun on the floor and then it cuts to the low angle shot behind the gun and the people dive towards the gun. And I call that scene, get the gun. Mm -hmm. And like so many movies just devolve. Like there's a plot point where it's like, get the gun that determines the whole movie. And it's so boring once you learn that that's there. And in Star Trek four, he throws the phaser away and (laughs) and space time. People are like, probably shouldn't have done that (laughs) you know but it's like and it doesn't even look like a gun you know it looks like a stupid television remote the guy the the modern humans don't even identify it as being a threatening (laughs) weapon really funny if they said it to stun and used it and the people hit with it blew up like they do in district (laughs) nine they were like oh i had the power turned up my bad absolutely my bad that was definitely not the guy like walked off and he's like, what the fuck is this thing? And when the, the moment they got outside of the, uh, the range of the ship, it just like vaporized people. Yeah. His car exploded. <laughs> I, I just start back at the idea at the top. Spock just needs to go through the world neck pitching people just to get what he wants. Just to get what he wants. He just neck pinches the people in front of him in line. And he's like, I would like a happy meal, please. <laughs> No, we saw that clip from Picard. Apparently, it was Picard that the guy shows up in uh, season two. And the neck pinch, I guess, is not something that just lightly puts you to sleep. Apparently, that guy is traumatized from being <laughs> pinched in his neck. Has anyone ever gone into like a like a 20-year coma because they were neck pinched? Because that would be <laughs> horrifying. We, we, we had a good conversation about Star Trek trying to be nonviolent. And the question that you asked me in text that I'm going to keep coming back to for a long time is like, where, what, and how can we, you know, distance ourselves from militarism? Uh, you know, like what are the tropes that we cannot take with us or whatever? The neck pinch, I think, is a really good example of something that's supposed to be fairly nonviolent, fairly like non, it seems fairly defensive, but it's like you are literally making someone unconscious. It is, it like, it is just uber patriarchy <laughs> you know, just to like bonk you gotta make out. sure they don't hit their head on the <laughs> sidewalk yeah <laughs> i mean yeah i was because uh kate watched part of this movie with me and we were talking about how like bill cosby would love that technology you get it it's like it's fucking gross but it's it's wielded by the most enlightened character the most rational character you get it the most non-violent character 
arguably in the series. Mm-hmm. And so it's a good example of where Star Trek is running from something and they're just running right back into the same politics. <laughs> you get it? And it's like, in my mind, I'm like, just keep running. That's the point. Just keep running. Don't quit. Don't quit. Just keep trying to find something else. Find something else. Find something else. You know? Yeah. I'm sure Bones has a lot of the same questions about no, the no. Uh, ethics of the neck pinch. Yeah. That'd be funny. Just concussing people, <laughs> arguably. I mean, oxygen deprivation, not good for the brain. I don't know if that's what's, really? if it's nerve damage, also just not good for the brain. The brain doesn't like being suddenly unconscious. <laughs> yeah. But if it was a more comfortable knockout, if it was like, if it was more like anesthesia, then Spock would have a problem because I'd be knocking on his door all the fucking time. Yeah. In one of the Superman movies, he kisses Lois Lane and she forgets everything that just happened. So the 80s are full of this shit. It's very weird. Yeah. They don't do that to Catherine Hicks, though. She, no. She just shows up and embraces like, oh, thank God. Thank God this is way better than the capitalist <laughs> hell I fucking live in. I would be pumped if I showed up in that future because as of right now, it does not feel like that's where we're at. Yeah. Wait, a replicator is like that would just be that would be a week in and of itself. Yeah, when I saw on Voyager that they could make um not a Voyager on Discovery that they could replicate like new uniforms, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> of course they can. I would be replicating so many fucking like Oh my Just god! Ridiculous man. costumes. <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous costumes. More and more elaborate uniforms, but just within regulation. The most skin tight toothpaste costume I've ever had. <laughs> this is what I need. This is what I want with my life. Or it's way too baggy. It looks like the fucking big suit from uh, from Talking Heads. So that the, the the ship comes down and out comes the crew. And if it's the people from Tears of the Sun, they're here to get exactly one person and they're going to literally annihilate anybody that gets in their way. If it's Tears of the Sun, they pop out of the trash cans (laughs) and then they like put their hand over the the garbage man's mouth (laughs) and then say, we're going to take somebody out of here and you're going to take us to him. okay?" and they just nod with bright eyes. And And then they hold them like that, like from in that position and then move in a group pointing their guns out all the way through San Francisco. If it's guns of Navarone, we don't even know that they're there until they show up filthy and dirty at a wedding. They get escorted out by the police, and then a couple hours later, there's some serious fireworks. That, like, blows out the windows of our town. <laughs> that probably traumatizes generations of Navarone. A section of San Francisco that's that's just abandoned for some reason, so you right. can do whatever you want there. Right. Um, that was a, that was fun that they did that. So that way you knew that any shooting that went on wasn't going to endanger any any Greeks. Right. Um, they do that. They do that in modern movies, and I fucking it's so dumb when they when I catch it. It's like the neck it makes page. me pump my fists in the air. Yeah, <laughs> just a convenient little plot point where we're not doing that bad. And then if it's Star Trek, um, they take us out and chat us up and ask us where the whales are and break into the Navy base. That's amazing. No, and then they take a whale away. Navy's very Navy's very threatening. Navy's very threatening, especially to whales. They shouldn't have taken, I mean, not only the new core, but like take all of the sonic stuff off of that ship because that's what they need. I mean, it's just, it's it's nice to, it's nice to see all that stuff framed as being backwards. Mm-hmm. By a major franchise, by a legitimate franchise, not by some offbeat weirdo movie, but like Trek. I love it. Enterprise shot, sure, we'll give you that eventually. 
It's like two hours in. Oh, there it is. And it's gone. (laughs) Come back next time. They give us the Enterprise shot, and then it's the aircraft carrier, and you're like, yuck. That's true, and it does. It looks big and gross and stupid sitting there, and they're just like, how do we... It's like a waste of our our energy to just use that as an aircraft carrier. The gaze on the Enterprise, which you have said was like strategically designed to look non-militant, is glorious, and the aircraft carrier looks like a lump of lead sitting in a bay. Yeah. Cool. Good stuff, Star Trek. Batch 10. I'm not exactly sure what we're going to call it yet, but I dig it. Um, Great batch. What is next? We have one more batch. What's it going to be, Charles? Sadly, it's a long one. Mm. But it's one I haven't seen. I don't think I've seen it all the way through, at least. We are going to go to 1962. And we are going to watch a movie directed by directed by Ken Anakin, Andrew Martin, Gerd Oswald, Bernhard Wicke and Daryl F. Zanuck. We're going to watch The Longest Day. One of the most ambitious undertakings since all quiet on the Western Front and gone with the wind comes to the screen with Daryl F. Zanuck's production of The Longest Day, based on Cornelius Ryan's universally acclaimed bestseller. Its cast of stars represents the top... You would um, recognize Bernhard Wicke as being the director of The Bridge. Wow. He's involved in this? He directed the German episodes of this movie. Okay. Well, we get a little bit of John Wayne here on The Real War Project. Probably good that we have him show up and talk to us about toxic masculinity. I don't think we've seen him yet. There's Henry Fonda coming back. He's Brigadier Dude, Wow. Henry Fonda plays Theodore Roosevelt in this movie. Henry Fonda was the president the last time we saw him. <laughs> Although he's not a president Every yet in fucking... this movie, I guess. Um, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. Okay, never mind. Oh my God, Sean Connery's in this. Eddie Albert. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Every fucking star from the era. I've said this before on this show, and this is a good example. I've read a lot about this movie, and I've never seen it. So it's long. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to like it, but um, I'm excited to watch it, definitely for the sake of this project. I don't know. It's always fun to think about how they make some of these things. You know, watching drone footage these days and how easily it is to to make a an epic helicopter flyover type shot. Totally turned off to those shots now. I hate them. <laughs> They're so basic. It's not exciting anymore, like, to see a guy on a mountain bike with a, a thing flying over. Yeah. It's like, I need to know... That it's actually a dangerous helicopter <laughs> flying over you. That that to get the shot in itself was a stunt. We were having a similar conversation with the crane pull away, where it's like typically at the end of an episode or the end of a big part of the story, the character's standing there and the camera's in their face and then it zooms out, zooms out, zooms out, and it goes like way mm. up, sometimes even like into the trees. And they could do that with cranes and stuff, as you know. Yeah. Um, and that would be something that they would do. And now anytime I see that camera move just an impossible distance in a perfectly fluid motion, I just immediately think it is a drone shot. And I don't want to say that that makes it inherently bad, but I do think that there's something to be like being played out, that things get played out and that this one is being really, really played out right now so much so that it's ruining other mechanisms maybe. I don't know. It's like post Lord of the Rings seeing overhead shots of people on hillsides. Like, yeah, 20,000 people (laughs) clashing into each other. Right, yeah, yeah, waves of people doing, like Braveheart did it and then Lord of the Rings was like, let's just franchise that. (laughs) We're just going to make that into. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to make technology specifically just to make that massive and uh, cheaper and then every movie epic after that is going to use that technology to show it to very little effect right. has no stakes 
Like like shooting in the jungle has no stakes. Apparently. Didn't seem that bad until you get out of it. So longest day, everybody. Go sit down and watch that from 1962. This is going to be the last batch of the season. It says invariably compared with Saving Private Ryan. That sounds right. Sounds like something mm-hmm. people would do. So Interesting. It's going to be a good batch, this next batch. I'm looking forward to it, Charles. That's what you think. Well, Aaron, I am concussed, and I'm going to climb up the side of this mountain. All right, Charles. Well, I'm just standing at the top of this mountain having a cigarette, and I just heard something, so I'm going to go check it out and see what it is. If everything goes well, I'll see you next week. Anything can happen in a war. Slap in the middle of absolute insanity. People pull out the most extraordinary resources. Ingenuity, courage, self-sacrifice. Pity we can't meet the problems of peace in the same way, isn't it? It will be so much cheaper for everybody. You're a philosopher, sir. Zach and Matt are two veteran horror movie enthusiasts discussing their favorite and not-so-favorite horror films. Scary movie fans, beware, or listen to Watch No Evil. News, reviews, and deep dives of the television series and film franchises you love. Take a tour of the popular media world with Biggs and Brandon on Not Safe for Network. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together, they explore the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema on The Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project. You can find all of these shows wherever you find your podcasts. You can find all of these shows on Redwood Sound Labs. Redwood Sound Labs.